little catch-up before we get to our uh, really awesome episode. I'm going to say it. It's really awesome. I'm going to say it's a killer episode. Hell yeah. It totally is. Justin, you got the new... Wait, what you... You got the new Blu-ray release, right? I did. So since we last talked, uh, since we're recording this week by week, I ordered the Blu-ray from Arrow Video. Nice. Uh, shout out to somebody who's not, you know, sponsoring the podcast uh, for Killer Clowns. And let me tell you, it's got a little reversible uh, little jacket with awesome. some new art. And it also has that classic art with the catchphrase, it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, that's the best, like, line to get me hooked to a movie. On a movie poster, it's like, hey, just so you know, it's crazy. I'm yeah. in. Yeah, give me two A's, two Z's, uh, no That's less. It. Yes. No, if it's if it's less than that, then it's not that crazy. No. And I don't uh, want to fucking watch it. It's going to mildly shock you. <laughs> Woo. So how is it? You You watched and listened to the commentary and everything. I did. And I think the commentary is old, so it's from the DVD. But okay. uh, it looks so much better. I think the transfer is really good. The colors really pop inside Ooh, that ship. Yeah. Uh, it's got new bonus features and stuff. It's just, you know, it's a nice little package. Uh, That's wonderful. It it feels good. It feels good yeah. to have a fun new thing. Um, uh, and I'll say this. Listening to the commentary, learned a lot. Learned I bet. a lot. But... There are some things that we're going to learn on today's episode that are not in the commentary. I'm so excited. I can't believe we were able to do this. Yeah. In case you didn't read the title, (laughs) uh, we are talking to the director of Killer Clowns from Outer Space, Stephen Kyoto, today. Whoa! Can you believe it? I'm so pumped. I mean, he and his brothers have done everything. Like, he did... Fucking Large Marge. Maybe the greatest character in any movie. In cinematic history. Greater than Orson Welles and Citizen Kane. Oh, yeah, he can fuck right off. Uh, Greater than Spartacus and Spartacus. I'm trying to do a second beat of us naming famous movies and then quickly trailing off. I know, I'm trying to think that. Better better characters than that one... I don't know, the lady in Gone with the Wind? A greater character than the lawyer who gets eaten in Jurassic Park? Uh, That's a close. It's a toss-up, I know. That's a pretty close one. (laughs) Oh, you know, just that toss into a bite in that movie. I always remember I remember my dad in the theater when we went to see it. It was like the first kind of intense movie I'd ever seen in the theater because I was in like second or third grade or something. 
And I remember my dad when the lawyer got eaten off the toilet was just like, yes, yes, that's what should happen to all lawyers. And I was like, whoa, dad, you really don't like lawyers. Everybody stand up. Everybody. Yes. Cheer. Cheer. <laughs> they are dead on cinema they screen. Dead. Um, I'm, I'm so excited that we get to talk. To the man who created Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Yeah, we learned the origin of the movie. We also learned something that I haven't found anywhere else. The origin of where whoop de goddamn de do came from. I love it. That, it's so cool. And you're going to learn it shortly. Uh, before we dive in, should we yeah. see what, we, what what should we name this episode? You got any pitches? Let me think. Let me think. Uh, killer... Interview <laughs> with a killer director, but with a lot of ellipses to fill it to really capture the the <laughs> yeah, hesitation. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think? I, I, uh, interview with a Kyoto. Interview with a Kyoto Inter- pyre. Interview with a Kyoto pyre. Interview That's with a vampire it. parentheses Kyoto pyre. <laughs> interview with a vamp Kyoto. <laughs> interview with a glamp. Kyoto. Oh. Because he's going to go glamping. It has nothing to do with vampires at this point. Oh, yeah. He's going to go glamping. Stephen Kyoto, <laughs> Edward Kyoto, and the other Charles. Kyoto, Charles, thank you. They're all going yeah. glamping, but they don't like the outdoors. No, it's glamping. Yeah, they brought a it's portable glamping. toilet that's that's as heavy as a real toilet, and they dragged it out of the yeah. woods. <laughs> then they just empty it into a river <laughs> or something. <laughs> well, I don't know where you empty those. I mean, I like interview with the Kyoto Pyre or va- Vamp Kyoto. Kyoto. Vamp Kyoto. <laughs> All right. Well, you guys will know what it's called because it's uh, officially made its way into the title by this point. Yeah. But please sit back, relax, and enjoy us screaming at Stephen uh, Kyoto. Here you go. When did you see the film for the first time? That's a pretty good question. I saw it weird, like in college for the first time ever. And uh, it blew me out of the water. I was like, I didn't know movies could be made like this. Like legit funny, legit scary. It's perfect movie. It, it blew my, and after that, I was like, I need to watch this at least once a month, if not more, please. It's so good. Yeah, I also saw it like in college for the first time. Was too scared to see it as a kid looking at mm-hmm. the VHS in, in a blockbuster. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then finally watching it, I was like, oh, this is also a comedy. <laughs> uh, and also, I feel like I was like dipping into horror as I got older. I was like, oh, this rules. And all we do is text each other and, and you know, uh, <laughs> scream about it in all caps over, over text over the last 10 years. <laughs> Pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah, it's the best. I'm just so surprised, really, that after all these years, it's kind of caught on to one generation after the next after the next. And uh, I am so surprised that people still enjoy the film so much. That must be such an incredible feeling of just, yeah, exactly. Like seeing it just through the ages, even more and more becoming a cult classic and people and like. Universal Studios making a maze of it. Like, that's so cool. That was another big surprise. I mean, it, it, we, we just made a film. My brothers and I made the film just to make ourselves happy. It's the kind of thing we would like to see in the theaters. And oh. we never thought it would amount to very much except 
you know, we made a movie. And it's just, it, yeah, Universal doing a, a, a font in L.A. and Orlando. It was just, a, <sighs> it, it, I guess it's become part of uh, uh, America's pop culture, which is uh, quite, a, quite an accomplishment, I guess. I mean, it is. I feel like it's it's also like its own monster, like iconic monster. I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, you have all of these archetypes and like you were the first killer clown. Well, you know, I, that's a good point. I mean, you think about the classic universal monsters, Frankenstein, Dracula, Werewolf, the Creature from the Black Lagoon, you know, and then what, what new ones were there? The Blob was a, a, a new icon. Definitely aliens. Yes. Alien. And then after that... I guess killer clowns is like a different. It's a different category for a genre of of horror clowns. So yeah, feel proud about that. Ah, uh, it's it. How did how did you come up with like yeah? How did you and your brothers come up with killer clowns and decide let's make the coolest world? Well, actually, I, I was sitting around thinking, what is the scariest thing I could imagine? And yeah, I thought about it. I said, I imagined a, a scene where I was driving down a lonely mountain road. And a car was passing me by. And as it passed on the driver's side, I looked around and there's a clown staring at me. Now, a clown being where he shouldn't be is pretty fucking scary. <laughs> yes. And uh, <laughs> and then I guess I, I mentioned that to my brothers and we talked about it. And then we said, what if he wasn't in a car? What if he was just floating? And, oh. you know, and then they're always here for nefarious reasons. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I became killer clowns from outer space. I mean... Uh, that that really was it. Something as simple as, I mean, for me, a clown after midnight. <laughs> Lon Chaney's famous line, "The clown after midnight" is uh, is like one of the most frightening things. That is horrifying. That sentence by itself is so scary. I got chills. Yeah, yeah. What what do you, I think this phrase goes? There's nothing more frightening than a clown after midnight. Something like that. That's Lon Chaney, senior. Yeah. And so I guess I kind of tapped into that. I kind of accidentally, I didn't have a real fear of clowns. I just never really liked them. You know, I wasn't the kind of kid that ran to them. When I went to the circus, they kind of made me feel. Right. Now, I'll ask you guys, how did you feel about clowns? What, what's your impression? I don't, I don't need them in my life. I was never into them at all. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't seeking out clowns. I, ne- I didn't know anybody running to clowns, but I... I I was like, yeah, they're here. They're part of the circus, but I'm excited more about these animals. <laughs> well, yeah. That's true. I can remember going to Madison Square Garden in the city with my parents and my family. And, and uh, there were these clowns doing the, their usual antics out, in the, in, out on the floor. And one would come up <clears throat> to the audience. And they had that, that uh, gag where they had confetti in a bucket, you know, so they would throw water at each other. Then they'd have a bucket with confetti. They'd run up to the audience and throw this at you. <laughs> yeah. This clown's coming around and he comes right up to me. And I did, he was in my personal space and I didn't particularly care for that. I mean, he made me feel uncomfortable. And yet everybody around me was laughing. My <laughs> parents were laughing and I was feeling this kind of like discomfort. And I think that's what it is for me. It's like there was this disconnect. Everybody was laughing and I felt uncomfortable. And that I think is my, the core action to clowns. I just don't want to be around them. Yeah. And I feel that comes across in the movie so well for the audience being like, why is this like college kid so pumped to see a puppet show? Like a creepy puppet show. Like the whole town is like, whoa, look at these really creepy clowns. And as an audience member, you're like, no, they're, yeah, they're making me uncomfortable. Like you nail it so well. Uh, That's kind of what we were playing with. It's kind of like how, uh, 
parents and most regular people, like, they're attracted to clowns, like Ronald McDonald or, you know, you see them and you, you're kind of drawn to them or, or a parent will put their kid on the lap of a clown or something like that. I don't know who these people are. It's like the most dangerous thing to do. Uh, so it's kind of like <laughs> playing on the stupidity of, of like typical, typical people who are just kind of just, it's like I'm watching the flame, you know? Right. So right, right, right to the attraction. <laughs> only when they get, when they get too close to realize it's not really what they thought it was. And it's been too late. <laughs> it's so, it's so spot on. It must've been so fun coming up with this idea. Yeah. From the very beginning of like, what is so, what's scary to me? A clown at night driving a car past me to then like, oh, okay, if we have clowns from outer space, of course they're going to turn people into cotton candy and like drink their blood. Um, how was it working with your brothers when creating this? Oh, actually, it was that was a lot of fun. It probably was the most fun we've had in the overall production. <clears throat> we, uh, we wrote the screenplay in a month. We were doing five pages a day. Wow. It was our, our goal. And we would just sit around and uh, just brainstorm. Actually, I had laid out the, the how can I say, the treatment. Um, and it really was based on the 1950s blob. That film is, to me, a classic 50s sci-fi movie. You had the, the teenage kids who see something and the town won't believe them and they have to prove. Happens in one night. I think it was a perfect sci-fi film. So I looked at that film and just kind of took the, uh, the plot lines. I, I just took the structure, laid that out. And then we just brainstorm. We would sit there and think of every circus gag or motif that we could think of and put like a twist on it. And we ended up calling them uh, the kills. We called them candy-coated kills. Oh, yes. I love it. Because it was something familiar, but there was this kind of evil twist at the end that becomes uh, deadly. It was fun. Yes. Oh, we had so many. We had too many. We had we threw so much stuff out that we couldn't jam into the- into the film. Do you remember any of the kills that didn't make it in or like some of your favorite ones that you wish you could have done? Oh, let's see. Uh, well, there was one in particular. Um, it was juggling where uh, these clowns walked into a bar and everybody turns to look at them and they start juggling, you know, your typical bowling pins. And as they're going back and forth, people are going like, again, boo. <laughs> yeah. Boo. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, they, one thing changes to like a bowling ball, then a lawnmower, then a washing machine, <laughs> and then all these incredible things that you just can't possibly juggle. Yeah. And uh, then all of a sudden, it explodes into some kind of, then it was like chainsaws and deadly things that just go around the room and just start killing people. That was one of the oh. gags. Oh, that's so good. The ending was even bigger. We had the heroes running through the spaceship, climbing down this wacky stairway with doors and windows opening up with clowns slashing out at them. And they end up in the middle of this room on a disc. And the disc starts rotating like a record player. And all around the foot of the record player, there's like a clowns. The circumference was a bunch of clowns with weapons. And as the disc went faster and faster, the centrifugal force started throwing them out to the exterior and they had to hang on to the spindle and it went faster and faster and faster until I forget what happened in the script. Oh, I think that's when the Trenzi brothers come in and save the day, distract them and save the day. But we couldn't yes. do that. It was like a 20-foot <laughs> rotating turntable that we had to put our crew on. It was impossible. So we cut it out of the film. And that idea, just a, li- a little note, that came from a ride 
that my brother Charlie and I went to when we were very young at Rye Beach Playland in Rye, New York. In fact, the entire interior of the spaceship was based on the magic carpet ride. It was a fun house. And you go into this thing, into this dark ride, this room, you walk through these mazes, and it ended up in this big room with this giant turntable that drew you away with the centrifugal force on these (laughs) wacky stairs. Then you sit in a chair that collapses. You go down this roller coaster type conveyor belt and you get thrown out into the street. (laughs) That ride was really the genesis of the entire interior of the spaceship. Oh, that I want to go on that ride. I feel like nowhere else is there like all of the, all of those pieces in a single ride. Like, I feel like I, I've been on one of those, you know, like kind of spin out style rides where you're thrown against the side of the walls and you, yeah, yeah. But it's never themed, you know. Like I feel like you go to them now and it's like very bare bones. Like you just go on and then you're just kind of thrown against a wall. Uh, but the fact that there was like a story and a narrative, or at least like you know some sort of dark ride element, and the fact that you drop down. <laughs> oh, it was great. Now this is in the fifties, uh, so this this ride no longer exists. But they had a <laughs> yeah. cylinder that you walk through this rotating cylinder. It was great. I, it was uh, it was a fun house. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. And so when you were younger, were you um, what in like, yeah, were you really into like uh, cartoons and stop motion and monsters and stuff? Uh, well, yeah, it was uh, I think all of us were always interested in monster movies. Um, I could remember well, we lived in the Bronx and we had these elevated train tracks in a, right down the block. It was part of my neighborhood. And when I saw King Kong, the original black and white movie, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and I saw him rampaging down my city street, tearing apart my elevated trains. To me, it was surreal. I just thought it was absolutely real. I, and it made a big impression on me. And then I got, we watched all monster movies. We watched Ray Harryhausen movies, Willis O'Brien movies, Godzilla, yeah. all, all those early Japanese films. We just got into monsters. And then it was... Uh, Corey Ackerman's famous monsters of Filmland magazine. That was the thing. We mm-hmm. saw one issue. It was Gorgo was on the cover. And it was like a whole new world. All these monsters, horror and creatures and things like that. And little by little, we, we learned how they made movies just by looking at some of the scenes. I had very few behind the scenes photographs in those days, but we were entrenched in it. And then we got a Super 8 movie camera when we were young. Ah. Oh. We started making movies in our basement. It was like a form of play. Yeah. You know, we created stories. Well, it feels like you got to go full circle and make your own Gorgo, Godzilla, King Kong at the end of Killer Clowns. (laughs) Like for me, that is (laughs) like when I first saw the film, I also like grew up on Godzilla and King Kong. And I love these like giant like kaiju monsters. And I was like, well, it's already a cool movie, but it'd be really cool if there was a giant clown. <laughs> and the fact that, like, the moment I wanted it, it, like, felt like it was manifested while watching the movie. It was like, here we go. We got Clownzilla. We got King Clown or what, you know. Yeah, well, I said, for us, you had to top yourself at the end of the film. I mean, the clowns, they were good all the way through. But what do you do at the end? You have to have something yes. big. So a big clown. It was supposed to be stop motion. That was the the original idea. But even on our budget, we couldn't afford it. We do stop motion. and you know, We couldn't the time it takes to do we couldn't afford it so man in a suit was the next best thing and it was kind of a throw to godzilla which is again uh something we really enjoyed when we were kids 
but it's funny even as kids we noticed no noticed there was a difference you know um king kong mighty joe young uh raised cyclops from seven voices mm-hmm. in bed there was something different about them the way they moved their performance was just it was much more of a performance and we didn't know why that godzilla and rodan they looked different but we really didn't know why until we got a little bit older i think i started animating when i was like 10 years old with clay yeah and we kind of figured it out but uh yeah, it's funny. All those movies, all of those films that inspired us when we were young, they're in Killer Clap. Ah. There's references to so many different things that we grew up as grew up with as kids. That's such a that's such a dream to be because you said earlier, like we just wanted to make a movie we would want to watch. <laughs> yeah. And like and and you did where it is just like, let's put in all of our favorite things. And go nuts and make a really cool movie. What a dr- ah, that's so cool. Yes, you know some of the references. Uh, the Beast from the Haunted Cave, a Roger Corman film, really creepy, and they had people kind of wrapped up in these web cocoons. I think even Ridley Scott might have been kind of uh, uh, inspired in in the first Aliens with that. Uh, it's very creepy, and we put that in there. And like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the pods. Yeah. That imagery was part of it too. And and um Forbidden Planet. Remember the Krell laboratories, the, the Krell rooms down there? There's one shot where this they look down the Krell labs and it goes on for miles, hundreds of miles, and this giant ball comes oh. up with electricity. That's that's our power. Yep. Uh I mean that shot is oh. beautiful. I feel like there are so many beautiful shots, but that one in particular is like Ooh, no, I agree. <laughs> it's, it's gorgeous. That was a matte painting created by Mark Sullivan, a good friend of ours. Oh. Uh, he worked with us in L.A., then he went up to ILM to do matte paintings for, for Lucas. Um, extraordinary talent. He did all those matte paintings, the, the power chamber, the, uh, oh. the spaceship tent in the woods. Um, yeah, uh, he's extraordinary talent. I didn't think I even realized until maybe the most recent rewatch that the tent in the woods was a matte painting. I, I was just like this. I mean, so much of it just like blends together so mm. well and, and holds up. And even when you notice something is a matte, it's like, I, I miss matte paintings. I, I want too. more. <laughs> I miss them so much. <laughs> yes. Yes. So they do digital matte paintings now, but you know, it's, 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 yeah, you'll see traditional arts are coming back, but it's interesting. Um, we didn't want to, I mean, some people call the film a farce. It's not really a farce. It's really a loving homage to the things we liked. We really cared and, and took things seriously. And we didn't want to make fun of the, the effects. We tried our best within our budget to do the best special effects we could so that the effects weren't part of the joke. Like right. Laughing at cheap effects on it, you know, like maybe um, Killer Tomatoes or Sharknado or something like that. That's what I love about it is that it feels like a love letter to all of the things that you grew up with, but also like trying to make the best version of this film and uh it it doesn't feel like a parody and i feel like there's like a fine line between you know this sort of uh it's all taken seriously Uh, that's it exactly it was a couple of the actors had a tough time getting into that aspect of it where it was so absurd that i what i was asking them to do but i asked them to play it straight because if they played into the, the fantasy of it it wouldn't be uh, it wouldn't be real. We tried to make the, mm-hmm. the the fantasy or the the foolishness of it be real, that these were cotton candy cocoon guns that were going to kill you. These pies were going to kill you. And that's something to be genuinely afraid of. 
In fact, a really cool line, one my brother Charlie really likes, when Dave the cop is leaving the cocoon chamber with Debbie after saving her, he looks up at the cocoons and says, we can't leave now. There are peoples in these cocoons. And it's the revelation that this character is, he realizes that the town is dead. (laughs) Yes. He comes around so like in a perfect, in a very real manner of just being like, "What are you talking about, killer clowns and cocoons?" And then, re- like, and then sees some cotton candy all over the car and Joe Lombardo's glasses or whatever, and then is very much like, "Oh, this is so real. Our whole town is gone." <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. Uh, that's it. I mean, at what point does the absurd become believable? And not to get too heady about the film, but that that's it. You know, you don't, I mean, you, you can't possibly believe this notion. Then you start seeing elements that are odd and you, and you say, well, wait a second. And he's a serious cop. Yeah. So he was saying, I have to consider this. <laughs> oh, it's so well done. It's so, and it feels, it just feels like everybody was having such a blast while making, I, I don't know. It just comes off on screen of like, oh yeah, everybody was having so much fun. Yeah. I'm glad it looks like that. It was, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was my first feature to direct. So I was learning a lot. It was all shot on location up in Santa Cruz, California at night. So oh. six weeks of shooting. And it was, I think it was supposed to be four weeks at night and two weeks in the day, but it ended up that we flipped the schedule all the way. It was all nights, even the interiors at the end, we continued on the night schedule. After a while, it kind of gets a bit much working nights every night. You're out of sync with the whole world. I think I think our crew was up for it. I mean, uh, the entire crew was jazzed about it. They they thought it was fun. They really enjoyed it. Some of the how can I say (laughs) executives (laughs) that were involved peripherally (laughs) get what we were doing, and they were like not really interested in it, and it caused us a little bit of grief. But all in all, I'd say like 95% of the crew really dug the film. Yeah. And one night, I remember, we were going a little late, you know, and I think it was our first AD said, you know, we can't work the people like this. So I looked at everybody and I said, come on, guys, you want to just kind of just go for it and just shoot this last scene here? And they all said, yeah, 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 we're up for it. So my, my the AD wanted to go home, but the crew, they <laughs> yeah. So it was kind of like... Yeah, it's always the job of the AD to be the asshole. Yeah, he was. And he <laughs> yeah. was really good at that. In fact, one night I had to kind of pull him apart from my brother, Edward, who was a producer. He and the AD were fighting about <laughs> one thing or another, arguing, and they almost got into a fight and we had to kind of break it up. It was... Uh, <laughs> it was... It was... I, I'll tell you. It wasn't... It was the best and the worst. <laughs> yeah. We were shooting up in Santa Cruz. We didn't get dailies, except maybe maybe twice a week we'd get dailies. So we didn't yeah. see any of the footage. There was no um, video tap. So I was shooting in the dark. My, oh. my DP was a little older at the time, so he wasn't really looking through the camera. I had my operator looking through the camera, who wasn't that experienced, as I would have liked. So <laughs> I said, did you get the shot? Oh, yeah, we got it. Then I look at the dailies like uh, four days oh, later. Yeah. No, you didn't get the shot. So a lot of disappointments, <laughs> a lot of compromises. But yeah. all in all, I have to say, you know, it, 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 it is what it is. <laughs> well, it is great. I, I think, I mean, I guess you're the only ones who know what it, it, it isn't, I guess. Because yeah. I feel like it endures so well for fans and you know just people who keep it feels like this movie has a legacy that like keeps going 
did you have any idea that that was going to be the case? Oh, no, not at all. It got really poor distribution in the beginning and just kind of went away. They just didn't promote it. And we thought it was dead. Then it came out on, on uh, what was it? Uh, one cable, USA Cable ran it. And they ran it again and again and again and again in the 80s. And I think that's where we got our audience. It certainly wasn't the, the theatrical release. Yeah. And then it was this big fan base. And then the, the, the VHS came out. And they just, that was the DVD, day, uh, the, the VHS days. Uh, and uh, Blockbuster and all those video stores and they mm. couldn't keep it on the shelf. People were stealing it <laughs> and they didn't distribute them anymore. They weren't releasing anymore. So they became really rare at that point. Wow. Couldn't even find when people were collecting them uh, like Spanish versions from Mexico that were very popular at the time. Uh, so we had no idea it would catch on, but that was it. People saw it. And so the fans of the film in the eighties, they got married, had kids, showed it to their kids their kids liked it, showed it to their friends, and then it kind of jumped generation after generation. So now we go to conventions and we see kids that are like 10 years old. Their parents showed it to them when they were four. Oh. I think it's a little young. But anyway. Yeah. Uh, That's scary. <laughs> and they love it. Uh, I can't wait to show my nieces. They're a little too young for it right now, but I'm going to, I'm definitely going to show them it a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to. Be, be, be smart about it. You, you know your yeah. kids and, and know what they can or can't take. It could do yes. major damage. Absolutely. I think you did. Betsy did show it to her parents for the first time recently. I did in February. I show. I we, they were kind of like, we know you like like what kind of movie do you want to watch? I was like, I mean, I know one that I think you will really love. And they were, and I showed them Killer Clowns, oh, and really? they were blown away. Like even my mom, who's usually just like reading or doing Sudoku, put it down and the whole time was just like, oh, this is so good. This is so funny. And so I like then when I got home, I sent them a DVD of it and stuff. And they'll and they'll text me sometimes being like, we're watching Killer Clowns. I'm like, yes. Oh, that, yes, it's so good. <laughs> that, that's that's so funny. So, I mean, I, how, how old are your parents? 74 and 73, I think. Okay, so they, they, they know the, the, the genre we're playing with. They know the 50s and 60s. Yes. They live in the time. 80s. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> That's funny. What a nice yeah, it was, there. It was cool. It was cool. <clears throat> were there any moments, or yeah, like any of these big um, uh, special effects moments or uh, that you were were just like, I don't know if we're going to be able to do this. But then it they turned out to be really great. Is, does that question make sense? Oh, yeah, yeah. There, there were a lot of challenges. We didn't have much of a yeah. budget. And we were expecting to do a lot. We called in all the favors to all our special effects friends. Uh, Gene Warren and Leslie Huntley, Huntley from Fantasy Two. they did all the optical effects and the miniature effects, and they were just oh. great in. I mean, they they were Emmy Award winning, Oscar winning. Uh, who did uh, Joe Joe Viscosal? He did the pyrotechnics. He he blew up the 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 uh, um, Death Star in, in Star Wars. Well, he was part of the team. Holy shit! Whoa! <laughs> and he blew up the tanker in um, in uh, Terminator. I mean, this guy was great, uh, <laughs> and he blew up our our ice cream truck. Oh. The great guys. Um, I guess the challenge was, you know, we had planned to 
actually have the real ice cream truck break through a, a breakaway wall live on stage. And that night we were ready to shoot it. And the art director, um, uh, Philip Foreman, um, he, it was a big job with our small crew to actually build the wall. And we would have gotten one take on it, which was kind of dicey to kind of waste our time with because we had so much to shoot that night. And then Gene Warren just stepped up and said, you know what, guys, we'll do that in miniatures. We'll do that. So the truck breaking through that wall is a miniature. Uh, Whoa. That's Gene Warren at Fantasy 2. Great, great group of people. It plays great. It looks like a real truck. Well, yeah. And again, again, Gene's brilliance. There we were shooting, uh, you know, our clownzilla with my brother Charlie in the costume on location. And there were these shots that I wanted to get like over the clownzilla's shoulders looking down at Dave the cop. And, uh, and 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 we figured out we would do some perspective shots. That's putting the you know, the, uh, the creature closer to the camera. Like my hand is really big right now. <laughs> yeah, that, that kind of effect. And you know it was really hard to set up. But Gene Warren, he just lives and breathes this stuff. And he said, "Yeah, let me do this." And he got oh. the ladder, put Charlie on on a, on an offset, put the camera up there, and had Dave. And he we shot all those shots so fast. He just knew exactly where to put what lens how high to put it, how far away to do things. He used to do hanging miniatures oh, uh, wow. as, a, as a, one of those old-fashioned techniques in filmmaking. Oh, it was great. So we got all these great shots that night. That was one of the challenges. Yeah, you mentioned what was challenging to get yeah. all of that Clownzilla stuff in that, I think it was one or maybe two Wow. in that scene. So that was... That's so cool. And I bet that was, as a first-time director, getting to see Gene... Work that magic, just taking that in, being like, oh, I'm learning so much right now. Oh, yeah. Well, he was, uh, you know, I have very few mentors from, you know, my in my career, but he was, he's definitely one. one of the first people we met in Los Angeles when my brother Charlie and I moved here in 1980. And nicest, nicest group of people. And I remember there was another shot, you know, if you, if you watch the behind the scenes or listen to the, the commentary on the DVD, you'll hear this bitch session about us cranking <laughs> about how horrible it was to make the film. It's really an education in filmmaking. <laughs> you try it out sometime. There was one scene where the clowns had just come out of the big top after they chased Mike and Debbie from the tent and they make the balloon animal. They make the balloon. Oh, and I wanted so a good. scene where they're standing against the tent as the background and they place the balloon dog down on the ground and then they run past camera. That's the shot I wanted. And the, the DP said, no, we don't have this. You know, we don't have, we can't do this. The, the lens and that, all these reasons why you couldn't. And Gene was quietly listening on the sideline. And he said, here, he took the effects camera, which was a Mitchell BNC, put it on the ground on a sandbag with a wide angle lens, set it up in like less than five minutes. And he got the shot. He, he oh. got the shot for me. So I really indebted to Gene's. Uh, I mean, oh. Wow. Yeah, it feels like everything. I just watched the commentary last night, and it was so fun to hear. Like, oh yeah, like just the materials you're sourcing and like painting and quickly putting together to look like the final product in the film that looks so good. <sighs> like, I'm thinking of like the string kind of lights that you have in like the foreground when they go to the circus tent uh, in the woods, and it's like this is just like tubing, and uh, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Low budget stuff. And actually, it was Philip Foreman 
our art director, he helped us design or actually fabricate the fun house spaceship interior. Ah. Uh, my brother, Charlie, we, we came up with the, um, the Memphis design that was popular in the 80s. Pee Wee's Playhouse had a lot of that styling, uh, these odd shapes and colors and patterns. And we thought that would be appropriate for the clown world. So Charlie adapted that as the set piece for in the interior of the spaceship. You know, we didn't have very much money to build all these sets, but Philip Foreman came up with the idea, taking these elements and creating like a kit of parts. He created boxes, cylinders, and circles with these patterns. And you can then just build them like building ah. blocks, arrange them in all these different uh, formations to create a, a myriad of different sets. And that's what he did. So it was black ah. limbo, like, like, uh, the magic carpet ride in <laughs> Playland with these colorful um, blocks. And that, that's, that, was, ah. that was it. I got to ask, do these props and sets still exist somewhere? I mean, there are some gigantic ones. It seems. Well, maybe, no, they're probably not gigantic in real life. Never mind. No, actually, <laughs> I'm imagining. Most of them were very cheap. Those um, cylinders you can buy at the hardware store, what they call sauna tubes. But uh, no, all, all that stuff is gone. It's, it's, it's been gone, I think, right after we wrapped. <laughs> yeah. But there was one, I think, uh, there was a miniature that was made for uh, the chase sequence in the spaceship. We had these, um, like, lizards, lizard heads. And they ran out of the mouths. They ran yeah. into it, and then they ran out. That was a miniature about this big. They were about that big. Oh, man. Forced perspective. We put it close to the camera and we had our actors in the background running out. So Uh, that was way, I mean, Gene Warren in fantasy too. That's what it is. That are those like, is that considered like Memphis style? Like, cause those snakes really remind me a lot of like Tim Burton y kind of looks, you know, and like, and kind of, yeah, Pee Wee's Playhouse and stuff. Yeah, well, that, that's kind of the the world at that time. I mean, Tim yeah. has a different orientation. He has his he has his snake heads too, uh, but it was this this uh, even even Paul Rubens with Pee Wee, he liked circus. So there's this mm-hmm. mix of circus. I don't know where Memphis design originated from. I used to know, but I can't remember right now. So it was a, a mix of that. There was a, also a, a building block set called Zulu, or Zulo that were these weird shapes, very indicative of, of the 80s punk scene. And I think Tim might have been, inf- I, I, I been influenced by it too because a lot of the shapes and simple, simple things, well, maybe they were influenced by Tim Burton. It's hard to tell. Right, yeah. Uh, what yeah. came first. But it was like this zeitgeist in the 80s of this colorful, playful type of uh. weirdness that we kind of absorbed from... LA and kind of put it through the horror genre in our film. Yeah, it's got a lot of Dr. Seuss vibes to me yeah, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, the big vacuum uh, but- uh, parade where they're just sucking up all those kind candies. It was so like, oh yeah, this feels like a Dr. Seuss machine. Well, that's interesting because he and I share the same birth date. <gasps> <laughs> so it's really funny that, that yeah, I, I, I've always been, I always gravitated to his work his art, it was for kids, but there was something kind of dark and sinister about it where he played with the light and the darkness of all of his illustrations. It was kind of, it would draw you in, but kind of repel you at the same time. And I yep. think we do with all of our films. I mean, 
even no matter how horrific we are in our in our art form, it's always kind of friendly and fun. So it's kind of this yin and yang. Mm-hmm. Ah, oh, yeah, it's so good. It's so good. Um, may I ask about? I think one, maybe my favorite character in any movie, Large Marge. <laughs> unbelievable i remember i saw that movie when i was like five years old and i was like this is the coolest large marge rules (laughs) and just like making my parents rewind and play it over and over again um how how was that how'd you come up with large marge well actually it was tim burton who came up with large marge yeah yeah. his illustrations his drawings oh Um, i had worked with tim and Rick Heinrichs on Vincent, that little short, uh, back yeah. in the early 80s. So I knew the guys. And then when he got Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Rick Heinrichs was kind of doing the special effects for Tim, doing the animation effects. And they had these two scenes. He had the uh, the T-Rex coming alive, that, that, and they had this large Marge effect. And, you know, he said, we got these two shots. Which one, you know, you're interested in? I said, I, I want to do the dinosaur because I love dinosaurs. And he said, oh, no, I'm going to do the dinosaur. <laughs> I said, ah, because I didn't know how we were going to do Large Marge. I had yeah. No idea. So I said, oh, well, I'll do Large Marge. And it was a real challenge, but I'm really glad because it is an iconic moment oh. in that film. I mean, you would leave that theater saying, yeah, Large Marge. Yes. Yes, right. you do. Oh. Unbelievable. Uh, Alice Nunn was the actress. We did a, a face casting, a head casting of Alice. We made a mold and they, we made a clay, uh, a plasticine casting of her that I could animate frame by frame. And we used her wig that was in the film. We used her wardrobe on our clay prop. It was one-to-one size. We had taxidermist wow. human eyes in there. We had her wig costume. And, wow. Uh, and I started animating but interesting little note too when we first started looking at the 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 clay skin it didn't really look good didn't look real so i got the makeup that the makeup artist used on alice nunn i got her makeup and i hired a makeup artist to put makeup on the clay piece so at least in the first couple of frames before i started re-sculpting it that it had the patina, it had the kind of reflectance that maybe human skin would have had with makeup. But it's not there very long anyway. Because ah, so fast. <laughs> yeah. It took about, I don't know, maybe 12 hours to animate. It was Whoa, only like 20 yeah. frames. It was like re-sculpting every single frame. But wow. dude, it, I mean, it is the memorable moment in that movie. Yeah, yeah, and, it, know, it like was. Out of People, many memorable yeah, moments. It was, it, was, it was a great scene. The whole buildup, the whole scene is great. It's so good. Story, the pacing, then that boo cut was just really great directing. Yeah. So good. Oh my goodness. Yeah. What a dream. Like you created Killer Clowns, Large Marge. I'm blown away. (laughs) (laughs) I had a question about uh, uh, so my my favorite character in Killer Clowns is probably Mooney. (laughs) I think John Vernon. Like I think he has some of the most iconic lines, like "Killer clowns from outer space." Oh, holy <laughs> shit! <laughs> like, I, 
how did you cast him? Whoopty goddamn to do is, is uh, it's a forever catchphrase. Well, that's now. funny. How did these lines came come well, up? <laughs> like, were they written in? Were they, I know that you guys kind of improvised a little bit on set. Yeah, very little bit. I was a young director, and I didn't really let my actors stray too far from the script. <laughs> I should have let them. They, a few times they did improv with some of the brilliant lines. Oh, remind me about that. There was some great stuff. But whoopty goddamn to do actually was one of the model builders at Fantasy 2, this older gentleman. And he would just say, whoopty goddamn to do And I said, we were writing the script at that point. I said, that's really funny. So we put it in there. <laughs> Give it to John. But John was really great. I mean, oh. right from day one, we want this really mean, really nasty, authoritarian bully cop. And I was remember, I remember uh, Dean Wormer from Animal House. And I said, John Vernon, he'd be perfect for it. I was really flattered when he agreed to do it. Uh, I had one conversation with him prior to, uh, to the uh, to shooting. And I said, well, John, do you have any questions? Anything you want to talk about about the script? He goes, no, no, it's all in the script. <laughs> <laughs> but he brought himself to it. And he was great. Oh. I, working with him, I learned quite a bit. There was a number of times when uh, in the police station, when the clown comes in and confronts him with that a flower, the squirting flower. We did one take where uh, the flower squirts once in John's face. And I said, okay, that, that was good. I didn't want to do too many. Didn't have much time. And I thought it was fine. And then John said, no, how about we try another take? Have him hit me once, a beat, and then a short one after that. <laughs> yes. And we did it. And that's <sighs> what we used because it was just brilliant comedic timing. You know, extended yeah. the beat with a little bit of a surprise, a bit of a punctuation. Um, that's great. He was great. And it's funny. He always, he knew where the light was when he was putting the clown in the jail cell. It's dark and he's in the shadow, but you can see the glint in his eye. And then he'd move out, out of the shadow into the light. And that he was just a great actor. You know, he yeah. had to play the light off of his performance I, I, I really loved it. And I, I, I spoke to his daughter. He's John since passed away, but I asked his daughter if John, what he thought of the film, if, if he really liked being a part of it. And she said, yeah, he really enjoyed it. He, he really liked the experience. My brother Edward, at the end, the last day of John's working with us, he said to my brother, he said, you know what? He said, I think this film is going to be really popular. He said, Mooney should come back. He should do a sequel and, and Mooney should come back. And we said, yes, yes. <laughs> we were the sequel at that time. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, his ventriloquist moment, uh, everything. It's uh, probably one of my favorite. I mean, there's so many favorite scenes. I keep saying this is my favorite part, but yeah, yeah. he's so I good. Talk about some improv. It was uh, two things. Um, in the jail cell, when those two punk kids are in the jail cell and they're trapped in there with the clown, and the clown turns to them and they look up. <laughs> yeah. I didn't have a button on it. It was really that look from the punk. God started kind of shitting in his pants. We did a couple of takes. <laughs> I was happy. And it was a local talent. He said, hey, can I try this? What are you in for? Yep. Said, yeah. And that's perfect. <laughs> perfect. It's a perfect button for that because it was kind of flat and it was great. And then another scene, Peter Lacoste, who played one of the Terenzi brothers, played Paul, and unfortunately, uh, Paul just passed away. He's no longer with us, oh. I'm sad to say. But sorry, uh, he and uh, 
and Mike Siegel were, were a great comedy team. But when they were trapped in the ice cream truck and the clown was, Godzilla was coming towards them, <laughs> uh, Dave says, get out of the truck. And that was it. There was no other line. Well, Peter Lacasi pops his head out and says, we can't, it's rented. <laughs> it's rented. <laughs> he came up with that line. It was perfect. Again, a, for, a great comic button for that. To show the contrast that those guys were in a different movie. Yes. So yes, I wish I'd done more, uh, given Grant and and Suzanne and and John Allen more opportunities to play with it. I think it would, would have been a, a bit better. Maybe they would have felt, you know, more engaged. But it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like that's what you probably learn as a uh, as a director. Like this is your first movie. It's kind of like, oh, you know, I can let go of things a little bit more, knowing when to like keep it loose. And when to collaborate and when it's like, nope, now's the time where everybody listen to me. We got to get through this. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, I, I was young at that time and I had always I had done stop motion previously. So there I was really manipulating the puppets frame by frame and uh-huh. posing things. So I think it might have been trying maybe too much control and not really understanding what the actor's role in the filmmaking process was. Just give them an idea of what's going on and let them give it the life and those fill in those moments. Um when I let John do what he wanted to do, it was really magic. And so I learned a lot. But I think Grant and Suzanne were still really tight. They're really great, great people. I mean, forever friends based on just that collaboration. Oh. We see each other quite often at these conventions, and it's always a, a joy to see them and to know that they're not embarrassed <laughs> by the film. Oh, that's so nice to hear. I love it. Yeah. I love that so it's much. It's just... It's uh, yeah. I mean, I don't. It's such a like. It could be a silly premise that people don't take seriously, but I think because you took it seriously, it's like taking the most wild idea seriously is what gives it that sort of like longevity and and truth, you know. And and oh, that's it exactly. If we had played it as camp, it would have gotten stupid really fast and been boring. That, that's what I think. I mean, you can't play. You can't have. Silly gags with silly acting with silly sound effects and silly music it just kind yeah. of builds up and there's no contrast. I think that's it. The contrast of them playing it so straight. Yeah. The actions were so absurd. That's what makes it interesting. That's what makes it funny. Yeah. And scary too. I feel like you still get away with like that's the big top burger scene <laughs> we were just Oof. talking about in our, our first episode. It it plays as legitimately scary and creepy and is so well edited and directed and the music is great. And the fact that that's in the same movie where a shadow puppet <laughs> eats a group of people is is a testament to like how well you balance both of those well, things. Well, it's interesting to say that because I, I guess the intention was to have genuine scares, genuine comedy, like a genuine kind of teenage love story to the full capacity. So that was my Hitchcock scene. You know, that yes. was, I wanted to have suspense there and I wanted to kind of pull it and, yeah. and make it as, as frightening and as deadly for that little child as I could. And it, it worked out really well. John's music, that one sustained tone, oh. taking the sound away, like all of a sudden we're in this dream, this kind of hypnotic, uh, uh, um, uh, hypnotic st- uh, stance uh, was what John helped us create with his music. In fact, it's funny. On Facebook, I just got in touch with Claire Bartle, the little girl who played that little girl. In Big I always wondered what she thought of the film. And it's funny. She said she really had fun. And she said 
she really enjoys being part of that film. She feels, uh, you know, surprised how how popular it is right now, and she's pleased to be a part of it. Uh, she was great. She was cute. She, she was so good. Yeah, local talent up from Santa Cruz. Ah, uh, oh, that's so fun. And then we so with gears too, and when Mooney gets it, that was again. It got really dark to balance out the comedy because then we got really stupid with the Terenzi brothers. They came next. And then it got scary with the uh, with the invasion to see the uh, the the invasion in the street. So again, it's like vacillating. It's like a contrast and affinity. It's like the yin and the yang. Something scary, then something light, and you keep on switching back and forth. That's that's the pacing, the rhythm of the film. Yeah, and it's it it. Uh, I know we were ta- it it like um, yeah, in a way. Those scary, like intense moments, kind of ground you of like, oh, this is serious. Even though they're funny clown, like clowns doing funny clown stuff, they're also doing this funny clown stuff in a pretty messed up way, like uh, Mooney as a puppet and stuff. But oh, it's so good. Yeah, and what really made that Mooney scene really scary was the sound effect when he went. Ooh, yeah. God, you don't see it, but. Boy, that was really visceral. And it was, it makes you stand there and say, wow, now get ready. Dave's going to get it. So it was, yeah. it was a little bit of planning behind the madness. Yeah. Yeah. We had fun. Oh, oh it's so good. Um, well, before we go, uh, we have a question. How would you have killer clowns kill us? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. We got to know together or yeah, separate. Yeah, together or separate. Whatever. However you prefer. Let's see. Well, first, I'd have you eat some popcorn. Okay. And I always wondered what happens to the popcorn when you consume it. Yeah. Justin comes over to you and says, why are you eating the fucking popcorn? And then all of a sudden, your stomach starts rumbling. And all of a sudden, these like a chest burst of these little jack-in-the-boxes come out and start killing <laughs> Justin. Yes. And you're you're a marauding like jack-in-the-box <gasps> creepy zombie entity. Oh, that's so cool. I'll, I mean, let's make it happen. We, yeah, we got to make it happen. I guess. <laughs> Yeah. I guess what is the status of a sequel? Uh, where I know that there have been like moments where it's like, yeah, it feels like there's something in the works. There could be a TV show. I feel like it's it's all I want to see right now. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you, we've been working on doing a sequel since day the day after we released the film. It really was, and we've been so close, and then it falls apart. Then we get so close, mm-hmm. and it falls apart. Then it goes from one hand to another hand. It's it's been totally frustrating, and I know the fans they really are angry with us because they think it's something we're not doing, but we've been trying for like 31, how long has it been? Over 30 years we've been trying. And we have this great, great premise of making it what we call a requel, a combination between a sequel and a remake. And it's kind of what they're doing now with like the Star Wars, how they bring back old characters. We wanted to have a new group of ingenue, uh, of teenagers, of uh, discover the clowns because there's a bunch of people who might not be familiar with the clown mythology. So you've got these young kids and in the course of their adventure, they meet this bum, this drunk living in a van down by the river oh. and it's Michael Tobacco. Yes. So now it's Michael Tobacco and he's a clown and he's the one saying, oh, they're going to come back, they're going to come back and he unites with these people. So that's, that's really the premise of 
of our our sequel or our requel. Oh. And then it's in it's a trilogy in four parts. It's the first yes. one of a Mike Tobacco adventure, then a Debbie adventure, and then a Dave the Cop adventure, where he's now the president of the United States. Oh. It's a war. It's 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 great. Oh, that sounds so good. <laughs> oh, I want to see a clown war. So we'll see. Um, we've presented these ideas for a TV show, a uh, a multi art uh, multi year series on cable. It's just, just, you know, a lot of these execs, they they think it's a stupid film. They think it's a stupid title. They equate it with Sharknado and Killer Tomatoes. Interesting, a quick story. That's what they thought at MGM. They just didn't really get it. And then John Massari, the composer of the tracks on Clowns, he created a live orchestra show at the Montalban Theater in Los Angeles. So he showed the film with a live orchestra doing the soundtrack with the Dickies performing live. It was a hell of a night. One of the best performances I've ever seen in my entire life. The magic, the electricity in the air was a packed house of, I think, like just shy of a thousand people. And we invited the MGM people in so they can see. And after that, because they said, no, we have to make it a horror film. We have to make it like it. We've got to make it. That's what they want nowadays. And we said, no, no, no. The comedy is key here. You can get both. Well, when he saw the audience and he saw the film with the audience there, he said to us, you're right. He said, we should do it the way you guys want. But he's no longer there anymore. So what happens with chairs at at these companies, (laughs) they get an advocate and then they leave and that's it. New people. And if they're not an advocate, because it was a meeting and they said it at MGM and they were looking for exploiting their titles that they have in their library. So they just said, "Okay, what do you guys want to do? Everybody raised their hand and said, Killer clowns, not yeah. Hannibal. I mean, that's not, all. Not not James Bond. Well, they're doing James Bond. Let me just, of all films, yeah. Ours. And that's what started. <laughs> so we keep on talking. What we, well, we want next yeah. is a comic book. We want to take our series, the the, the three storylines, and turn it into a comic, and see if we can get the fans awesome. to help fund that through Kickstarter, get that going, and that might be enough of a proof of concept for doing the show. Which is concept with a K. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is something we did for our Alien Christmas. I'm going to give a plug here. Yes, yeah. plug. Yeah. Uh, I came up with this idea, Alien Christmas. Kind of like Killer Clowns, taking two diver- uh, diverse concepts and mashing them together. So we had Christmas and Aliens. And we did Alien Christmas about these a kleptomaniac race of aliens that come to steal Earth's gravity. And they land at the North Pole. So now Santa Claus and the Elves are the first line of defense against an alien invasion. Well, we did a book because you can pitch this till the cows come home and nobody will buy it. But when they saw the book, it meant something. People kind of dug it. They saw it was a property they could exploit. Uh, so we pitched it around. John Favreau loved it. He, we made fr- we, we knew John from our work with, on Elf. Our stop motion oh. work on Elf. And he loved oh. the motion. We pitched it to him. He said, yeah, I like this. So we ended up pitching it to Netflix. We produced it. He's executive producer. I directed it. And it's going to be on Netflix November 20th in a catch alien Christmas, a Rankin and Bass holiday special up upgraded for the 21st century with Kyoto brothers humor. I am so excited for that. I'm in. I'm all in. It sounds so cool. So we hope to do the same kind of magic, maybe with the killer clowns that we can create a, a published property and make some rounds with it, we might be able to get more interest to kind of show people that there is a fan base that would warrant um, 
a sequel. Yeah, that's so smart. Well, let us know. We'll get we'll put it on blast, get the word out, you know. Absolutely. Do anything for killer clowns. Yeah, yeah. Uh, always trying. After all these years, we're not stupid enough to quit. We don't know what else to do. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for chatting with us. Yeah, I know it is. So much. Oh, oh, oh. Oh these are our knock, my block off puppets. Yes. Oh my God, I love them. Those are so great. Ooh, yeah, get them. Get them. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, guys. Great talking to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, yes. thank you. Thank you so, so much. That was a dream come true. Oh, well, great. Thank We're you. rooting for you. All right. Be safe. Thank you, you too. Keep watching the skies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Killer Clowns from Outer Cast is created and produced by Betsy Sodaro and Justin Michael on an impromptu fucking whim. Killer theme song by Casey Trela, Killer logo by Tom Smith, and killer editing by Brian Holmes. A special killer thanks to our guest, director Stephen Kyodo, and killer friend of the podcast, Harry Chaskin, for putting us in touch in the first place. If you feel like screaming about how much you love killer clowns at us on the internet, you can find Betsy at Betsy Sodoro on Instagram and Justin at Hey Justin on Instagram and Twitter. And if you find this podcast to die for, please rate it and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And wherever you listen, make sure to pass it along to all your killer friends. That's all for this week. See you next Friday, clownzillas. <laughs>